ChatGPT has become one of the most popular sites online. More than 100 million monthly users within just two months of its launch last November. It took Instagram two and a half years to reach that number. Users can type in a prompt and quickly get whatever they asked for written by artificial intelligence. And it didn't take long for students to give it a try. I teach freshman English at a local university, and three of my students turned in chatbot-written papers this past week. I spent my entire weekend trying to confirm that they were chatbot-written, then trying to figure out how I'm going to confront them, how I'm going to turn them in as plagiarists, which is what they are, and how I'm going to penalize their grade. This is not pleasant, and it's not a good temptation. These young men's academic careers now hang in the balance because they've been caught cheating. Thanks for that message, Kate. We continue our series, Know It All, 1A and Wired's Guide to AI. For this series, we've partnered with the digitally focused news outlet. And for this episode, we'll talk about artificial intelligence in the classroom. Later on, we'll hear from a student at Princeton University whose peers enthusiastically embraced ChatGPT. So he developed an app to detect when AI wrote a piece of text. I'm Celeste Headley in for Jen White. You're listening to the 1A podcast, where we get to the heart of the story. We'll be back with more in just a moment. Let's get into the conversation by welcoming Pia Saris. She's a senior digital producer at Wired. Pia, thanks for joining us. Hi, thanks so much for having me. Great to have you. And Lalit Vasudevan, she's a professor of technology and education at Columbia University's Teacher College, also the college's vice dean for digital innovation. Lalita, thanks so much for being with us. Thanks so much for having me on. So Pia, it's incredible how much students are already using chat GPT. How is it appearing in classrooms? That is such a great question. So uh, I guess just a little bit of a background on ChatGPT and how it works, I think will give us a better understanding of how students have been adopting it. I think what makes ChatGPT so distinctive compared to its predecessors is that the interface is more accessible than ever compared to, for example, GPT-3. So truly any one with an internet access and an email address could uh, theoretically access this tool, uh, which is what we're focused on here in this conversation on education. Any child with an email address could easily use this tool. And right now, unfortunately, we are seeing some cases of... uh, students who are using ChatGPT in in the case here in this voicemail for to to plagiarize uh, for their papers. But we're also seeing, um, and this is more the focus of the story that I was working on for Wired, some teachers trying to proactively discuss ChatGPT and even incorporate it in some of their lessons. But Lalita, ChatGPT itself is quite new, but AI is not new. How long have you been thinking about AI and the ways it might be used or maybe banned in the classroom? (laughs) Yeah, thank you for that. And I, you know, I, I really appreciate what Pia just said about just how accessible this particular tool is. But, you know, AI has been Um, increasingly creeping into the education sphere for a a while now. And, you know, my colleagues and I at Teachers College, um, we're in the technology and education program, have spent a lot of time really thinking about what automation means for various aspects of teaching. And I think we collectively take the 
uh, you know, approach that automation is not about supplanting the role of the educator or the educate or the teaching and learning relationship. But when you have um, districts like New York City who relies on Google Classroom to help support um, students' learning, um, to provide opportunities for students not just to be able to navigate these different tools, but also to um, create increased access for students, um, for all students uh, enrolled in the district. And this is this is the question we have around the use of AI technology. So, you know, I think people have been using various forms of AI um, in increased uses of uh, virtual reality, augmented reality, to really help kind of build out simulations um, when uh, other forms of access were not available. Um, we see the use of various AI tools to assist with um, some basic uh, assessment. Now, th there's there's a spectrum here. Um, we don't want to necessarily outsource everything to artificial intelligence tools. But like Pia mentioned, there are teachers who are trying to be thoughtful about how can the existing tools um, support the kinds of uh, teaching that I'm trying to do in the classroom. Which is different when you're talking about assessments or an analysis um, than it is when you're trying to teach someone how to write, right? So let's explain exactly the difference between, say, plagiarizing Wikipedia, which is quite easy to detect, and ChatGPT. Um, you spoke with Kelly Gibson, an English teacher who includes The Great Gatsby in her curriculum, and she asks her students to write a 300-word essay on what the green light symbolizes in The Great Gatsby. So 1A producer Chris Remington asked ChatGPT to do the assignment for him. In F. Scott Fitzgerald's novel The Great Gatsby, the green light is a powerful symbol that reoccurs throughout the story. The green light is first introduced in Chapter 1 as a distant yet visible beacon across the water, visible from the end of Daisy and Tom's dock. The light represents hope, dreams, and aspirations, but it also has a deeper meaning. The green light represents Gatsby's unattainable dream of being with Daisy. Gatsby sees Daisy as the epitome of everything he desires, and the green light represents his hope of one day winning her over. Gatsby believes that the past can be recreated and that he can relive his former romance with Daisy. I mean, that's not brilliant writing, but holy cow, that's close. Uh, Pia, look, I have a surprising number of, of friends who are professors and teachers. They're freaked out. They're very concerned that students are just going to submit essays written by ChatGPT. Is that a reasonable fear? I think that that is a totally valid first response. And the teacher that I spoke with for this story, Kelly Gibson, um, that was her response as well. I think that it's important to, to recognize and validate the experiences and feelings of teachers and professors right now, especially coming out of the tumult that was emergency remote learning in 2020. Oh, yeah. I think a lot of what I've heard from teachers is not just a direct response to chat GPT, but just continued exhaustion built up from the shutdowns of March 2020. So I absolutely hear teachers who are feeling fearful or just tired, uh, because it wasn't too long ago that technology somewhat similarly upended their lives and their practices. Let's bring a new voice into the conversation. Daniel Herman is a teacher at Maybeck High School in Berkeley, California. He wrote an essay for The Atlantic magazine, The End of High School English. Thanks so much for joining us. 
bring a new voice into the conversation. Daniel Herman is a teacher at Maybank High School in Berkeley, California. He wrote an essay for the Atlantic magazine called The End of High School English. Daniel, good to have you with us. Thank you for having me. So, Daniel, when did you first start experimenting with chat GPT, which which only came out in November? But still, when did you start? Yeah, it was, uh, I guess, in early December. I started seeing uh, things show up on my Twitter feed like a lot of people did. I think, you know, uh, rewrite famous Hamlet soliloquies in, in the voice of Donald Trump, that sort of thing. And I, and I made an account. And of course, the, the very first thing I did was start plugging in prompts for assignments that I give my students. And I'll, I'll never forget that moment. You know, my heart started racing and I, I, uh, I really couldn't believe what I, was, what I was seeing appear on my screen pretty much instantaneously. Because it was so close to what you read from students. Oh, yeah, totally. And, um, you know, I think for, uh, for the past few decades, it's been a bit of an arms race for, for teachers to craft assignments that are what I would call unhackable. And it immediately beca- became clear that the definition of what unhackable meant had, had changed irrevo- irrevocably. Okay, so let's dig into what you mean by uh, um, unhackable. One of the assignments you give your students is to write a 12 to 18 page paper comparing two of the great literary works. Here is part of a chat GPT essay that compares Homer's epic Odyssey and Dante's Inferno. Homer's Odyssey and Dante's Inferno are two epic poems that represent important works in the history of literature. Both works explored themes of journey, heroism, and human nature, but they also have significant differences in their style, content, and purpose. One of the most significant differences between the two works is their time periods. Homer's Odyssey was written about 800 BC, while Dante's Inferno was written in the early 14th century. This temporal difference results in different styles and language use. The Odyssey uses a straightforward narrative style, while the Inferno is written in a more complex and poetic form, featuring metaphors, allegories, and symbolism. So, Daniel, would you immediately realize that was written by ChatGPT and not one of your students? Yeah, I think so. You know, um, there's a certain level of idiosyncrasy to to any uh, any student's writing. You know, I, I listened to your show yesterday and heard one of your guests say that AI models merely give the the average of the data that it's it's called from. Yeah. You know, another way to say that is that it delivers the conventions of a form or or the standards and norms associated with with a task in this case, correct grammar, syntax, uh, syntax punctuation, which let's be honest is more than we can say for many high school and and college students. <laughs> There's no mistakes in it. That's how you'd know. Um, but Pia, let me put this question to you. When researchers tried out ChatGPT, they found that the, the AI client passed the U.S. medical licensing exam. That is what students takes before they become doctors. It also passed the final exam of a core course at the prestigious Wharton Business School. So how are we to understand the implications of an AI being able to pass these tests that make someone a, a, an MBA or a doctor? That is a great existential question for education. Is it existential? It feels very real. <laughs> uh, this is, I think by existential, I really mean a fundamental question oh, for education um, and what it means. I This calls to mind a conversation that I had with a professor at uh, at the, the higher level uh, who teaches master's level courses on really uh, 
taking ChatGPT as an invitation to take a step back and have a bird's eye view of the institutions that we have built formalized education on. And he observes that in his years teaching, there's been so much more of an emphasis on testing and testing and testing students um, instead of having a more expansive idea of what education is. Is it dialogue-based? Is it, uh, should it be rooted in students' personal experiences? Should it be more interpersonal? And I know that sounds all very abstract and vague um, as compared to a test on pen and paper uh, that we are, are all familiar with. But I think it's, it's worth, again, using ChatGPT as an invitation to maybe think bigger about what assessment should look like. Maybe we need to go back to the medieval practice of having all exams be oral and in Latin, but maybe not the Latin part. Um, Lolita, is it effective to make an outright ban on on a client like ChatGPT? Would that work? No, and and districts are trying this or have tried this. Um, It it has two, I think, deleterious effects. One is it inhibits the ability for experimentation within the classroom space. It it prevents the teachers and students to create some community around collaboratively investigating um, this tool. But it also um, takes away access for students for whom that might, the teacher, the, the school um, technology might be the only uh, access to this kind of um, technology they have. I think the other piece um, that, you know, connects to both uh, what, um, what Pia just said um, has to do with, I think education has been edging toward um, what might feel now like a sea change. I think we had... Uh, a full upending happened with COVID. Um, you know, people were forced onto uh, rightfully phrased uh, emergency um, uh, teaching. And so I think where we are now is we have an opportunity. People's attention and kind of uh, orientation toward potentially new tools in teaching, um, for better or worse, was opened up uh, several years, a few years ago with COVID. Yeah. But we have an opportunity now to think, how might we really answer the question, what is school for, who is school for, and how can school be a place of greater belonging, not only for teachers, but also for young people? Uh, Kathleen is a former teacher and emails us, apparently I retired at exactly the right time. And a listener tweets, I foresee the words prompt engineer showing up in job applications and resumes by the summer, and it being an entire job by the end of the year, as all the schools banned kids from developing those exact skills. So, Daniel, you argue in your Atlantic piece that ChatGPT could, quote, bring the end of writing as a gatekeeper, a metric for intelligence, and a teachable skill. How would AI make writing skills irrelevant? Uh, Anyone who teaches writing or uh, English teachers and tutors who are listening to this know how much of teaching English is just absolute tedium, helping students understand You need an apostrophe to make something possessive. This isn't a positive phrase. This is how to do an MLA citation. Or even just, you know, spelling. The standardization of spelling is just a made-up thing. There's so much of of, uh, writing education that's focused on that. If we can just give that over to the chatbot and we don't have to worry about, about apostrophes anymore, that seems great. The second thing is that there are many, many ways to have an experience with a piece of text and to demonstrate learning about uh, uh, 
of a piece of text. Yeah, without writing you can, about it. Yeah, totally. Yeah. I mean, you can you can do a drawing, you can do in a presentation, but we've always assumed that writing is a, an essential way to engage with text. And maybe that's not true anymore, and maybe that's okay. Well, um, AI is going to change education, like it or not. We've been speaking with Daniel Herman. He teaches English at Maybick High School in the Bay Area. Daniel, thank you so much. Thank you for having me. Coming up, we'll meet a student at Princeton University who saw how ChatGPT was being used by his peers and decided to do something about it. We'll be back after this quick break. Now let's get back to our conversation about artificial intelligence in classrooms. Now, we began our first discussion in the Know-It-All series, as we usually do, by reading an introduction scripted ahead. As AI technology continues to evolve at a rapid pace, it's changing the way we live, work, and even think. In this series, we'll hear from experts, innovators, and thought leaders who are on the forefront of AI research and development. We'll dive into the ethical and social implications of AI, explore the latest breakthroughs, and examine the impact of this cutting-edge technology on our lives. So that was not written by one of our incredibly talented producers, but by a machine. The result was not perfect, but frankly, it wasn't notable for being written by AI. Our next guest probably could have caught that cheat with a little help from, well, artificial intelligence. Edward Tienz is a senior at Princeton University, and he developed a free web program, GPT-0, that detects detects when text is machine written. Uh, We entered yesterday's intro into GPT-0, and it told us, quote, the text is likely to be written entirely by AI. Check and check. You caught us, Edward. Welcome. Hi. Thank you so much for having me. So can you explain in terms that even I could understand how you caught us? Yeah, well, um, so I built GPT-0 over winter break and released in January. And the initial version uses these ideas of variance in human writing that, you know, in human writing, we have creativity, we have short-term memory, which spurs bursts in creativity versus this machine writing is pretty constant over time. So it started with that baseline. Since then, it's been a month and the program is a lot better now. So I have a team working on it and we're kind of like taking uh, AI data and human data and training a model um, to be better and better at detecting AI. So your software actually scores uh, written texts for things like burstiness and perplexity. How do you measure burstiness? Yeah, so burstiness is measured in variance in writing. Um, It's funny because Burstiness was sort of a term I borrowed from linguistics, but in the last months, I've slowly seen it seep into the machine learning lexicon, which has been really cool to observe. Um, but it's it's sort of plotting this first variable over time and measuring the variance in, in writing. Okay. So when you created GPT-0, which I understand you did over winter break from school, as one does, why did you do it? I mean, it seems well, as, a, as a student, you'd be you'd be motivated to not do this, right? Yeah, well, initially, I wasn't just approaching it from the education use case, although I understand that for a lot of teachers and students, this technology was suddenly thrust upon us. I was more approaching it from the technology perspective, that when we are releasing these admittedly brilliant and innovative technologies like um, ChatGPT and generative AI, we also have to relieve release the safeguards so that they're adopted responsibly 
not months or not years after the technology's release, but right away. And that's where I thought, hey, maybe I could step in as well. Okay, so uh, I want to read you this tweet from Damien, who says, I work as a professor and AI ethics researcher and philosopher. I worry about how suspicion of AI's use will be invariably levied against some students more than others. If we aren't careful, these tools will expand disparities in educational outcomes. What's your response? Yeah, so that's an incredibly good point. I would say the GPD Zero app I released in January is like a lot of other apps people have been releasing, which is very imperfect. And it sort of has a black and white approach that this is either human or AI. And in the last month, our approach is to really completely shift away from that. So um, if you try the app now, it's not going to say this is AI or human. It's going to say and highlight portions of an essay that's more likely to be AI generated. And we did this for two reasons. One is we have a GP0 educators community of around 4,000 teachers, and they told us this is something they want because students aren't writing entire essays in AI. They're sort of mixing. But two, it sort of shifts away from this catch tool that the teacher pulls out at the end into something that's like highlighting portions and starting the conversation between teacher and student on what's an acceptable level of AI involvement which might not be the entire essay, but might be portions. So you, as you mentioned, you have a team now, six people I understand, who are updating your program, improving it. But at the same time, I have to imagine the folks at ChatGPT are also updating their program and improving it. Is this just going to be sort of an escalating arms race? Yeah, it's, a, it's an interesting question. So I would say two things. One is it's absolutely an arms race, but more in terms of not the lab development of these technologies, but in the real world, because everybody's building these classifiers with some of the same logic, perplexity, and brickiness that GPT-0 initially used, but no one's really um, sort of like tuning it to the education use case. Uh, And that's what we're focusing on. So one, we want to build this classifier to um, be... Uh, like specific for like education and trained on student essays instead of like a general classifier. And two, um, yeah, we we sort of want to be like talking to teachers on like how they want this tool to work. And then on on the lab side, I think uh, it's too early to say. There's like some metrics in terms of like perplexity and burstiness that might be innate for all of these generative AI models, whether it's GPD-3, 3.54. But also, uh, it could be that as these models get better and better, we need to train the detection model to be better and better, uh, which so far costs a lot less money and is a lot easier to do. Uh, Pia, I just wanted to, it sounds like in your reporting, at least, your message is also to teachers and professors, don't panic. Yeah, that is the the headline of the story. Um, I would say you're allowed to panic and feel your feelings, um, but now what? You know, where do we go from there? And what was so hopeful to me about hearing Edward speak was that it feels like students are taking ownership over this this sea change uh, that's happening in their lives. And I wanted to bring it back to something that Lalita said really early in the conversation, uh, which is inviting students to dialogue about this tool. Uh, All the teachers that I spoke with also felt panic 
initially, but eventually became strong advocates of not ignoring this tool's presence, but rather using it as a jumping off point to their students to engage in a critical dialogue about technology and academic integrity, the role of writing in their own lives, because this kind of technology will change the world that they live in, and they will also become the people shaping this technology. So, Lalita, ChatGPT has been free to use so far, but earlier this month, OpenAI, which is a, a different, similar but different brand, announced a premium membership subscription that's going to cost about $20 a month. I wonder if you have concerns about equity issues when it comes to the expansion of AI in the classroom. Yeah, certainly. And we want, you know, just, just to kind of build on what Pia said, we want all students to be part of building that future. We yeah. want students who go to school to be prepared to not only graduate school, high school and college, but solve the problems that haven't yet been discovered. Um, and I think moving to a subscription model is sort of predictable, you know, And but we also know with varying results, um, other companies are working on, other uh, organizations are working on their own chat uh, chatbots and, and AI tools. That's true. So, I'm hopeful that as more people get involved and feel invested, and I think that to me is, even as there's been so much fear, the fact that so many people are engaged is a hopeful sign to me. Um, and I think we have a chance to do a few things as people using um, these tools. And, and one is, I think, to be part of the conversation around things like how are, you know, how are these, uh, yes, we have chatbot uh, detectors. Um, that's great to hear that that's being built. But, you know, some people have said, you know, should we be citing um, AI-generated text? Should we be, you know, referencing it or naming it in some way so it becomes normalized and not sensationalized? Um, I think it gives us a, a way to really open up the conversation even more about media literacy and critical literacy that um, scholars and, and teachers have been doing for a long time. I think the three, two other points I wanted to make about this, because I think we want more people to use these tools because we want to demystify them. And we want the tools to be more responsible, the makers of these tools. And and that is to continue the teaching and learning relationships that I think all of your guests have talked about, really addressing those because that also can feed or diminish um, equity and access to uh, education yeah. um, opportunities. And the last thing is it we... We want, and I think I say we as an education community, but also as an educated community, um, we want people to ask better questions. Um, We want students to really dive into their inquiries. We want teachers to deepen their inquiries. And this, I think only good things can come from people asking better questions, more questions. And I think that's what, you know, both from an ethical perspective in terms of who has access, but also from how we use these tools, um, that's what's going to help us, I think, shape and agitate in, in productive ways. Yeah. You know, I, I wonder, Pia, because, you know, it, perhaps the solution is is using the SALCON method, SALCON of the Khan Academy, where you do the lectures at home and do the homework in class. Jeff emails us, maybe English teachers should have all essays done in class. I have long hated the idea of assigned homework. It's not necessary. Do, do you think something like ChatGPT is going to reopen that that long-standing debate about homework? Oh, absolutely. I think that it will definitely sort of explode our notions of what is the best use of time in class and what is the best use 
of uh, learning time outside of class. Um, so I think to go back to what Daniel said earlier, something that I th- have been seeing teachers experiment more with is just switching up that format of multimodal learning as a better use of time in class writing or demonstrating learning in other ways outside of writing, having a dialogue, drawing a picture about uh, something that that they've been reading in class. So I definitely think there's room for more creativity there. So I wonder, Pia, do, do you expect writers and journalists to start using chat GPT to write up their stories when they're on deadline? <laughs> Don't tell my editor any of this. No, I'm joking. Um, <laughs> I didn't say you. I just said people. <laughs> um, I think that that's something that every newsroom will have to navigate on their own. We're starting out conversations uh, at Wired about it, but that I think that remains to be seen and will be developed newsroom by newsroom. Interesting. That is Pia Saris, senior digital producer with Wired, and Lalita Vasudevan is a professor of technology and education at Columbia University's Teacher College. She is also the college's vice dean for digital innovation. Pia and Lalita, thank you so much for joining us. Today's producers were Chris Remington and Avery Jessa Chapnick. This program comes to you from WAMU, part of American University in Washington, distributed by NPR. I'm Celeste Headley. We'll talk more soon. This is 1A.